Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. All right, so interview question one is, what is your name? Uh-huh. My name is Mandy Krupusik, and I'm studying natural language processing in the computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory. Cool. <clears throat> what is that? What, what specifically is, do you do? So a lot of my lab mates work on speech recognition, but I'm interested in understanding what comes back from the speech recognizer. So like if someone is using Siri, kind of understanding what they're asking and how to respond back to them. And specifically, I'm working on a diet tracking application. So like trying to understand if someone describes their meal naturally, what the foods are that they ate, and then um, what the nutrition facts are. How did you get involved with that? Actually, we're collaborating with some nutritionists at Tufts University. So they had this idea like, oh, if we can use speech and language technology maybe it'd be easier for people, like their patients, to track the food that they're eating. Interesting. So, yeah. like, they're... Wait a minute. So, is this, like, an algorithm you're working on so that it would work with, like, different speech recognition software? Uh, actually, I'm not really dealing with the speech recognition stuff, so it's basically the technology that understands a spoken or written meal description like I had a bowl of oatmeal and an apple and a glass of milk and then figures out that the foods are the oatmeal and the apple and the milk and maps that to the USDA food database to get the nutrition facts. What's the most complicated part of all of that? Um, right now, the most interesting part that I've done is this like deep learning algorithm using a neural network to map the meal description to um, the matches in the database. But like in my future work, I think being able to respond to someone and like give personalized nutrition advice or like actually interact with them through a dialogue is going to be really tricky. Hmm. And quantities, figuring out exactly how much someone ate of something is kind of a challenge too. Why? Um, people don't really know how much they ate, and when they describe things, it doesn't really map directly to the database quantities. Like if someone said, I had a bowl, they might not know exactly how many cups that is. Or if they say, oh, I had some butter on my toast, it's like how many tablespoons is that <laughs> exactly? So it sounds like there needs to be smart, like... Uh, bowls and utensils and like all this something stuff. to do the quantities or maybe if you can take a photo 
and use computer vision to estimate quantity from the photo. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, so Weight Watchers for years has been making tons of money off of this portion control stuff. Like, in, Hmm. in the way they do it is they put, they sell, like, portioned things to the Weight Watchers. This is how they make money, is they have, you can either go to the store and buy their Weight Watchers pre-portioned foods, or they sell the cups that you can measure and a scale. Because Interesting. They, so, hmm. because basically what they do is they provide you the information of like, oh, if you eat X amount of food, it counts as this many points. So they're working on a points conversion system. My mom did it for like, oh, so like I know how they do it. okay. But it's, like, but it's the reverse of what you're trying to solve. Like you're trying to make it more, which I would prefer. Like I'd rather uh-huh. have an app that's like, hey man, that's a little too much cereal this morning. Hmm. Like I'd rather it be like, knowing what I'm doing as opposed to me having to remember to count my calories Mm -hmm. because it's such like when I'm hungry the last Mm -hmm. thing I'm thinking about is like right how many calories you're putting into an app Mm -hmm. so the it just made me think that smart utensils would that connected your phone on some level that could like keep track of that being like oh we noticed that you ate like a lot of red meat this week Uh (laughs) uh-huh yeah that sounds good But I mean, that that doesn't sound like it'd be a ton of work given some of the sensors, but I don't know how Mm -hmm. smart utensils would work. I know a bowl could easily count weight, but it couldn't like distinguish like, oh, you're eating Cheerios. Mm -hmm. Like you'd have to be, maybe it could just ask you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Just be like, I'm eating Cheerios. It's like, oh, you ate three cups of Cheerios, maybe two cups tomorrow. Hmm. You even program it with like a... A guilty voice. That's fun. I like that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just you're just giving me ideas talking about your science. Sorry. Um, next question. <laughs> um, so let's talk about communication. Oh yeah. Um, what what kind of struggles do you have when it comes mm-hmm. to communicating about your science? to different audience. I mean, you're speaking next week, right? So. Right. So I guess something I have to keep in mind is how technical the audience is because I did a presentation earlier this year at CSAIL. It was like the CSAIL research party. And it was supposed to be a five-minute talk and you know that your audience is in computer science but not necessarily in your field. And so they were kind of helping me get rid of all the super technical stuff I had, like this really detailed neural network model and they're like that's way too much and like all these numbers and a table and they're like no you don't want that in this talk it should be like here are alice and bob and they're trying to track their dietary intake and like this is how they were doing it before they're like typing into google and like typing into the usda food database browser and then like there's a long list of options and it's painful for them so really highlighting the motivation and then for my talk i prepared my slides and i sent it to my advisor and he's like um, this isn't like the C-Cell Research Party. You should get rid of Alice and Bob and make it more technical. Because I was like, oh, it's supposed to be 17 to 18 minutes, but I have too many slides. So I hid the ones that are the super technical stuff on like how I perform this ranking of the top matches in the database. And he said, oh, you definitely should unhide those slides, <laughs> bring it back in. And so then I took one of the figures that was kind of simplified and then I replaced it one of with one of the ones that was in the paper and more technical. Is that like, does that like, 
uh, I'm just trying to figure out what kind of like emotion because it sounds like you just went through a slingshot kind of feedback. Like you were like one piece of feedback was to make it more simple, another one was mm-hmm. to make it more complicated. Like how? Right. I mean, have you gotten better over time at figuring out which to do in which situations, or do you still rely on feedback from people? I guess now, hopefully, I'll be able to kind of modify it better, given the audience. But yeah, I'm still learning. And even outside of um, MIT, just talking to people like my friends or my relatives, I've noticed it has to be completely different from how I talk to my lab mates, for example. Like my relatives say, oh, I didn't understand at all what you said you worked on. Can you explain it again? And then I kind of go back and rethink, okay, what did I say to them and how can I make it easier for people who aren't technical to understand? So I think I've gotten better at that now, too. When you come up with an idea for something, do you have to, like, kind of filter it through, like, how do I communicate this to somebody at some point? Like, is that part of it? Like, you know, because it sounds like you're in this hotbed of, like, where so much cool stuff is happening with the research around you and different mm-hmm. people are working on different things. But, like, what's your first reaction when you come up with an idea for how to solve hmm. a problem? Are you Do you figure out how to communicate it or do you try and do it yourself and then try and figure out how to talk to hmm. somebody about it? Like, I'm just curious. I guess, yeah, when I'm thinking about an idea, like a solution to some problem, I'm thinking about how to approach it from the technical standpoint and then later... Once I've kind of worked through it, then I would frame it depending on the audience. How much do you get tripped up even talking to like your lab partners, like different people that you're collaborating with? Like, depend do they all um, really understand everything that you you know? Or? Oh, not necessarily because they might be doing speech recognition and I'm doing natural language processing, and there's a difference even between us. But I think they understand pretty well. Have, what you, I'm... Do you, have you figured out like shortcuts like to get them up to speed so that they can understand how you're coming at something because you're doing speech recognition versus image processing? Like, is there like a trick that you use to just... I think most of the models and solutions we use are pretty similar between the two, even though it's different tasks. So if I just stick to talking about the implementation instead of, I don't know. I guess it doesn't, it's not super hard with my lab mates. They pretty much can understand as long as I explain it clearly <laughs> and, uh, Yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm interested because, you know, one of the things we found when talking to a lot of the uh, scientists, and I've just been thinking about communication huh. for a year on this project, but, like, jargon and technical speak mm-hmm. tends to also be shorthand like when it's effective, it's awesome because mm-hmm. it there's like because it can mean that you can jump somebody to speed on what you're doing much faster because you don't have to like explain I don't know like uh, um, quantum entanglement like 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 if you know what that means and I say that and I know what that means we don't have to, we can move on to the next I idea see. quicker versus like if I say quantum entanglement you're like huh. And I'm like, all right, I got to explain that. Or I have to think to myself, is it worth it to explain that? Or is there only a small part of that that I need mm-hmm. to move on to the next thing? 
Okay, that's probably what it is. Like, we understand all of these keywords and these different models, and so we can just use the jargon what with each other. What are some of the keywords that are common in the work that you're doing? So, for example, I, I might say, oh, I'm using a CNN architecture, which means a convolutional neural network. And so they understand the acronym, and they know what this network is, and they know how it's different from other possible neural network architectures or like LSTM, long short-term memory neural network. And so they know what I mean when I say, oh, the CNN performed better on my task than the LSTM. Or if I say I'm using a word embedding layer as like the bottom layer of my neural network, then they know what a word embedding is. All right, let's <laughs> LSTM. How would you explain that if I was like, say, your grandmother? Okay, I guess I would say it's some... Um, machine learning model that can take some sort of input and predict some sort of answer as the output given. Oh, this is very difficult. No, I need to really phrase it differently. Um, it's something that remembers what it has seen in the past, and it kind of remembers that information as it's moving forward through time and so it relies like on yeah. that yeah. as like context so it's a machine that remembers what it's done yeah interesting okay i was only asking because like, yeah. i think it's interesting to like hear the difference and also like the point where like it is a struggle to think about like and i've encountered this a lot with other grad students where it's like you haven't thought of it in that simple term but i also think yeah. it's really difficult because you're like if i dumb it down too much it's not actually accurate mm. right but mm -hmm. if i'm just trying to construct an understanding to get somebody from point a to point b or z um you know i'm gonna skim over the middle of the alphabet because it's not really important to understand all the technical stuff right for them to just understand why it's important mm -hmm. which is interesting but anyway um, what's your initial reaction after listening to the podcast? I enjoyed the podcast. <laughs> I liked the interview with Professor Chomsky because, for one thing, I'm studying natural language processing, so I took linguistics classes for my minor, and so Chomsky is really famous in our field, and so that was cool. And even the stuff about tying it to education, because I'm interested in education, and I taught for the women's technology program last summer. And so one of the things they kind of traded us on was how he said you're leading your students to discover knowledge instead of covering the knowledge. So I liked that it kind of resonated with what I'd already studied. And the story from the other professor when she was giving a talk and there were 5,000 people and then 2,000 got up and left in the middle, I thought that was kind of... <laughs> powerful so it's good to remember to motivate your work for your audience did um anything you hear um like change your concept of audience or or add a new layer of understanding to the concept of audience that you were thinking before you listened to it um i'm not sure <laughs> okay um, yeah was there anything that specifically stood out to you that was helpful Yes, I liked the part, I think it was towards the end, where 
it was saying, like, if you notice your audience is kind of falling asleep or not paying attention anymore, then you can just try to hook them again and say, you know, it's really interesting. And so I'm like, okay, I should try that. For example, if I'm teaching, because that's when it happened the most often when the high school girls were just kind of <laughs> getting tired in my 930 lecture and falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, so I liked that. Yeah, and I also, I mean, just to add to that, if you watch, like, really famous speech writer, speech, like, Martin Luther King Jr., or even Randy Posh, Randy Posh is great at, like, I don't know if you know who he is, he's a no. VR, like, early VR scientist, and he did, he died of cancer, hmm. but he did this famous, it's online, it's an hour long, it's called The Last Lecture, where he knew he was dying, so he retired, but at Carnegie Mellon, when you retire from your faculty position, they let you do what's called the last lecture. But he was still really young huh. when he did his, because he had cancer. And it was like his seven, it was like his ten secrets to success thing that he did. And it's amazing. Hmm. But one of the things I love about his speech, the way he talked, and I love studying other public speakers for this, is that they, if you watch them enough, you start to understand how they vary their speech like when they speed up and talk really fast or if they, mm. they punctuate by slowing down. Mm -hmm. And what they're really doing is they're keeping the audience engaged mm -hmm. in these lulls. So it's never like you're just talking in a monotone kind of fashion and this is the thing that you need to be doing and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Because people just zone out. Mm -hmm. and yeah, so when I was first becoming a teacher, especially with high school students, I studied like charismatic speech uh, public speakers hmm. because high school students like literally will be like I don't know what you're talking about but this seems really exciting you know that kind of thing so yeah. I know a lot about high school kids but adults not so sure especially the MIT crowd because when you're talking to science I did my first speech here to scientists and it was uh -huh. like, scary Why? because because all the beats that I use with teachers so teachers are uh, uh, huh. their values are driven by like emotions mm -hmm. so like for instance when you're talking to teachers you need to talk about students mm -hmm. the reason why is because teachers will only value what you have to say if you can demonstrate you care about the same things that they care about mm. which are their students yeah if you start talking to teachers about what how they need to be teaching first they <laughs> won't listen to you because they're like you're just coming you're just another dude coming in to tell me how to do my job like people do all the time so like with teachers you have to demonstrate how much you care about students before you start talking about the craft hmm. of teaching scientists you have to talk about data because they don't care about anything else <laughs> you cannot have any conclusions that you have arrived to that a are declarative that's a big thing all declarative statements seem have to have room for um you have to demonstrate you're open to disagreement about any conclusions that you may have found about your work like the curiosity factor is really big but even so none of those declarative statements can come out unless they're backed up by data mm -hmm. they don't care about emotions at all <laughs> like i did and i was like i was like so students are really important they're like are they like, I'm like <laughs> 
They're like, is is that is that your thing? Like, what's the data to prove that they're important? And I'm like, thought that this was just assumed knowledge. Oh yeah, no, kind of so, anyway, that's funny. Much. I do this a lot. Adam's listening. The podcast host is going to hear uh-huh. this, and he's going to write to me and say, "Patrick, you're talking too much on the tape. <laughs> we don't care what you have to say." <laughs> so. I'm just saying that so that he will be annoyed and not send me that message later. Um, anyway, uh, are there any techniques, uh, tricks, advice, etc., you've used in the past when it comes to it, not language but audience, like connecting to mm. the audience? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I did not rephrase that question. I think actually one thing Tony had taught me in my class was using hand gestures to kind of emphasize your point. So when I'm explaining why it's painful for people to use MyFitnessPal. I'm like, and you have to scroll through a long list of database options. And I kind of use my hand to show it and I guess my voice to emphasize things. Um, And when I'm talking to my uncle, I've learned people don't really like, or he said, some people in your generation speak too quickly. So I try to slow down and enunciate for my uncle. Yeah. But do you think that that would basically even earlier you said that would change based on who you're talking to, right? Um Depends. yeah, I guess so. These things are probably good for anyone, but they come into my mind with specific audiences. And uh Tony wasn't in this podcast, so could you just mention oh, like who yes. he is and like just like ha- what you meant uh that you took a class in communication. Right, yeah. Yeah, so I I took this public speaking class my first semester here with Tony Yang, and he was teaching us how to communicate, um, and I don't know what else to say. I forgot. That's fine. Yeah. Um, What what, what was the most, was that your first communication course? I think so, yeah. What struck you from that experience? Um, Like, hmm. has anything stuck with you? Was it a weird to go through the class? Like, It was interesting. I think the main thing that stuck with me is just being comfortable speaking in front of other people. That was really the main thing. Like we would get up and then we'd have to say stuff like off the top of our head, like the words that come into our mind or just like stare into each other's eyes. And these exercises, I think, were super helpful. Just becoming comfortable being in front of a large audience. Um. Do you have any, uh, this is the last question, but do you have uh-huh. any advice or anything like to other grad students, like based on like any experiences or stories that you have uh-huh. where you either done something right or you wish you'd done something differently to engage an audience? Oh, um, hmm. I think I've learned over time to really stick with pictures in my slides and avoid text and that's just like I think my main thing when I'm trying to prepare a presentation the more pictures I have the easier it is for them to connect what I'm saying with the visual and really kind of understand what I'm trying to get across and reading text does not go over well people seem bored when I do that um for next week what are you trying anything new um I guess I haven't really, yeah, no, I haven't planned anything new. Although 
I might see if I can do something if to perk people up if they're falling asleep or they look bored. <laughs> Are you nervous about anything for next week? Um, I feel pretty good, but I'm mostly nervous because it's my first talk at a big conference. Like I've given one technical talk before, but that was a small workshop, and so this is a bigger one. Oh, answering questions. That's what also makes me nervous. <laughs> really? Yeah, because I'm like, what are they going to ask me? Are they going to ask something super tough? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. All you got to do is study the politician handbook. They're really good at, like, sliding all questions over to, like... I mean, you're obviously... I Because I wonder, too, in your um, field, have you observed anybody who's like done that really well like answered random questions that you can model after or hmm even just watching my advisor is really helpful because he's so good at giving talks and he's also really good at answering questions so the professors what are some things that he does or your professors do when answering questions they just seem like they know everything or maybe it's just like they're really confident and know their topic really well but i don't know how you (laughs) you'd probably just develop that with experience this podcast was written and produced by adam greenfield the executive producer of this podcast is patrick yurick the Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book Series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is, GradX made, is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more, to about, find Grad out X, more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of The Great Communicators Podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.